There once was a little boy who, as most little boys and girls are, was taught to say thank you. One day he received a gift, and after taking off the wrapping, he picked up the box, looked at the giver, and said, thank you, and put it aside. As he went to reach for his next gift, his parents realized he thought he had been given an empty box, but said thank you anyway. They encouraged him to go back to the box and open it to find the true gift inside. I'm sure he was excited and relieved to find that there was a fun present inside the box. Now, what fills a gift box can fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving for a few moments, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks. But what fills our minds and hearts has a greater and lasting impact on our lives. The Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So in other words, if you imagine what kind of person you want to be, take a look at your thoughts, and are they lining up with what you're envisioning? I work in a nursing home, and I have the honor and the privilege to serve and to help our elders. And as part of my job, I uh, get to talk to people and get them to talk. Which, and I've had the privilege of hearing many, many wonderful stories from these people. And it doesn't take long to pick out the people who just seem to smile. In whatever room they enter, the atmosphere changes, it gets more peppy, everybody starts to smile. And I started to ask a question. I started to say, what's your secret? You know, I mean, we all have stories, we're all people, right? Things happened in their lives, too, that were hard and challenging and heartbreaking. But yet, somehow, they were able to get to the end of their life or toward the end of the life and still smile. I said, what's your secret? And over and over again, I heard two things. I choose to focus on the good, and I just let things roll off. And that did it. I said, well, if I can, I want to be that positive person as I age. And then I took a look inside my heart and I realized, yikes, I'm on the wrong path. <laughs> and I realized I needed to change. And not just the content of my conversations, which were every bit full of grumbling and complaining, as everybody else, I skipped the colorful language, but the content was not positive. I had to change the inside of what was filling my heart. Because otherwise, it would be like taking the wrapping paper off the gift, but not changing the contents of the box. So I decided I was going to make a change. Because I didn't want to get to the end of my life, and the testimony of living my life as a Christian as being a miserable little old lady. I said, what kind of testimony is that? Where's the evidence of God's love and peace? And I thought, uh-oh. What kind of testimony is that right now? <laughs> so I decided to make a change because I realized there's no such thing as a smiling gene. Nobody has rhino-lined DNA that makes them repel and resist negativity. It's a choice. It's decision after decision after decision to choose to focus on the good, to train our hearts and minds to focus on the positive and to focus on God. Now, I'm, not, I'm still a work in progress. I'm not going to say I have it all figured out, but God is faithful. And he has grown me just like he can grow any one of us. So if we think of our hearts, 
as those bow-top boxes filled with treasures. And we take a look inside, what will we find? Will we find discontentment? Can seem kind of innocent, right? After all, we can find motivation to set and accomplish goals because we're unhappy with the status quo, right? Say, well, I'm not happy with this, so I want to make a change, so I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to accomplish it. But what if the only source of our goal setting is discontentment and being unhappy with the status quo? And we achieve that goal, and then we find that we're still unhappy. And so we set another goal, and we're still unhappy. And we set, set all these goals around cycles of discontentment. What if we let God set the goals? What if it was a God-sourced, God-sized vision for our lives? Because a me-sized vision says, well, I'm not happy standing here, so I'm going to take a step. And look, I accomplished my goal. But a God-sized, God-sourced vision, because his plans are so much better than ours, his ways are so much higher than ours, and his plans are so good, says, I'd rather take you beyond that step and put you in a rocket and send you to the moon. That's the difference in size <laughs> between my goal for myself and God's dream for me. So his plans are always better. But the danger with discontentment and allowing that discontentment to be there and to be that source for our vision is that it can lead to jealousy. And jealousy is that pang that you get, that emotional response of saying, I wish I had that. And I often find the comparison trap to really be a form of jealousy. And I think a lot of us struggle with it. I think women tend to struggle with it a little bit more. You say, oh, I wish I was like that person. Why can't I be like that person? Why can't I have that talent? Why can't I have that confidence, right? Why can't I be like that? And we look to other people, and then we look at ourselves, but have I looked at God yet? Did I ask God about his opinion on me? Did I focus on God's view of me or my view of me and how I think I rank compared to somebody else? And the problem is if we continue to allow jealousy to stay, we continue to feed that, it can lead to coveting. Now, this one made the top ten list in the Old Testament. And God takes his heart condition so seriously, he literally etched it in stone. Why? Why does he take coveting so seriously? Now, I think of coveting as being one step further. If discontentment is being unhappy, jealousy is kind of wishing I had something else. Coveting is a heart condition. It's more than just an emotional response. And a coveting heart is never content. It is always eagerly desiring something else. So it eagerly desires something else. It gets that shiny, whatchamacallit, and it's happy for a, a few seconds, for a few weeks, and then it eagerly desires another something else. And it goes and it gets it over and over and over and over again. Because it's not about the stuff. It's never about the stuff. It's about the heart. See, what happens is that a coveting heart winds up getting stuck in cycles of triggering the reward center in the brain. And they get that shiny whatchamacallit, and the reward center in the brain gets triggered, and it feels good. We like it when the reward center in our brain gets triggered. It sends a shot of feel-good feelings through our bodies. 
But because it cycles of triggering the reward center and it's not about the stuff, it winds up becoming a cycle of behavior that can lead to addiction, which doesn't feel good and is not freedom. So when God said, do not covet, he did that for our protection so we could live in freedom. Because coveting is a deceptive trap that can leave us broke, broken, and in bondage. So how do we combat this family, this grouping? We can go back to number one on the list. Have no other gods before me. That includes the shopping god. That includes me. Because if you boil down this family or this grouping, it says, you know what, God? I think I know better than you what I should be. I think I know better than you what position I should have in life and the things that I should have. That's the ugly heart truth of this grouping. So we can choose to focus on God. We can choose to let God be God in our hearts. And we can trust in his plan. We can stand on scriptural truth and meditate on scripture. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10, Paul is talking about gloating in his weakness. I don't need to have it all figured out. I don't need to have it all together. I don't need to be perfect. In fact, it's better if I'm not, because then God is glorified. Philippians 4, 8 to 9, he's writing to the church in Philippi. And I just want to pull out a couple little points here. He says, he's giving us a list of the types of things we should be focusing on in our minds. The types of things that are approved to keep us going in a positive direction. And he writes, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, these are the things we should focus on. Now, I always read that as if, let's say I have five scenarios in my life. The first one is excellent and worthy of praise in my interpretation and perception, and the other four, not so much. I'm going to ignore the other four, and I'm going to focus on the one. Then God challenged me over the last year or so, and he said, I said if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, I mean anything. Look at all five scenarios and find that thing that's excellent. Find that thing that's worthy of praise in every single one of them and stand on that. Find the silver lining. And I believe, as we uh, see later in that same passage, Paul writes about being content no matter what the circumstance. I believe that was a secret. He found the silver lining no matter what. He found the silver lining through the shipwrecks, through the stonings, through the rejection, through the beatings. He had a much more difficult life than I have had. And we see him coming out praising. Not just not grumbling, but praising God. Which was his secret. That was a secret. Find the silver lining. And how does he do it? How does he find that silver lining no matter what? Through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13, not in my strength, not in my ability, in God's. So how do we combat this grouping? We can choose to focus on God and let God be God in our hearts. We can trust in his plan. We can find the silver lining in every situation. 
through God who gives me strength. And it may go without saying, because if we are thankful, obviously, we're not actively experiencing jealousy and unhappiness, but we can be thankful. They've done studies, and they found that people who express gratitude on a regular basis have lower levels of self-criticism and lower feelings of inadequacy, both of which are pretty uh, prominent when you're struggling with a comparison trap. You tend to get overly self-critical and feel very inadequate. But expressing gratitude helps combat that. And it also helps boost resilience, which is when life throws you those hard balls, softballs, and curveballs, and it tries to bounce you down, you bounce back up. So what's filling our hearts? Discontentment, jealousy, and coveting? Or a trusting focus on God, his plans for our lives, who he says we are, and thanksgiving? What about anger, bitterness, and resentment? These can just kind of weasel their way in our hearts, find their, find their way in there, and they make us think we need them. They make us think that we're stronger with them and happier with them. Might come as a surprise, happier. I don't often think of angry people as happy people. But venting is in this family, is in this grouping. And venting is often the first step to anger. And the issue with venting is that it's so, so easy to fall into. Because remember that reward center in our brain and how it makes us feel good and we like it when we trigger that reward center and circuitry in our brain? Venting triggers the reward center in our brains. And this is so tricky because think about it. Something happens that upsets you. You get angry. You get hurt. It doesn't feel good. You want to stop not feeling good. So you turn around and you do something that immediately makes you feel better because it triggers the reward center in your brain. You go to anybody who will listen to you and you start to vent. All you're doing is feeding the anger because studies have also shown that people who vent tend to stay unhappier and more angry longer than people who got distracted. So not that there isn't a place and a time to talk confidentially for prayer and problem solving, but I want to challenge us, all of us, me included, to watch our focus. Watch if we're falling into this slimy, slimy trap of venting that feeds our anger. Because anger makes us feel strong. It makes us feel powerful. It can make people do what we want them to do, make people cower before us. It can feel a lot stronger than being hurt. But I like to think of it as a life-sucking parasite. Because it makes you dependent upon it, but it actually is taking your vitality. It is associated with so many health problems, including headaches, insomnia, high blood pressure, heart attacks, depression, anxiety, digestion problems. So, and it's so fast. It can happen so easily that we hold on to anger. That, because think about it. We, we're all human, right? We're all people. And we do things, or other people, will, they'll do things to us that hurt us, that make us upset. And it's easy to hold on to that. 
why do you think God said, don't let the sun go down on your anger? Because he knows it's easy for it to find a home in our hearts. He's like, deal with it. Get rid of it, right? Don't let it hold on. Don't let it find a home there. Let it go. And I just want to encourage you, the chemical reaction in our bodies that are associ- that's associated with anger, from the time that it gets triggered, it goes throughout our body and is reabsorbed, so totally resolved. The actual chemical surge associated with the emotion of anger resolves in about 90 seconds, no more than two minutes. I'm not saying the whole emotional experience is over. We all know that it's not. <laughs> I'm talking about the initial emotional surge where we can get that trigger reaction and those knee-jerk reactions is over in about two minutes or less. So when I've encountered situations in my life that cause me to want to react in that, with that knee-jerk reaction, I try so hard to think, just two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. <laughs> and how can, what can we do in that two minutes to avoid a knee-jerk reaction? Well, we can take deep breaths. It's pretty easy. We don't have to put a whole lot of thought into it. Just take some deep breaths. At least 10 seconds long, okay? Deep breaths. Pray. If I can't think of words in English, I'll start praying in the spirit. Pray. Interestingly enough, thankfulness. Because they found that the emotions associated with actively expressing thankfulness and gratitude are completely incompatible with anger. So if you're somebody who really struggles with anger and gets triggered pretty easily, Try to have a a list of things that you can be thankful for in your back pocket. And start being thankful when you're feeling it come on. And when we take these steps, it can help us get through that initial emotional surge so we can formulate a planned response, not a reaction, a planned response, and be more constructive and not destructive. But what if we choose to hold on to that focus? Past that 90 seconds, past a sunset, maybe past many sunsets? What if we hold on to that anger? We could become like that servant who refused to forgive after his master had forgiven him. Remember that story? The master forgave his servant a, an astronomical amount of money. He could never begin to repay. And how did he react? Well, at first he was thankful, right? He probably left with a little spring in his step. But what did he do? It's almost like those movies, you know, that the the lighting changes, this music changes, and you're like, don't do it, don't do it. They do it anyway. (laughs) He turns around and he refuses to forgive his fellow servant by comparison a couple bucks. Why? He had just been forgiven. Why didn't he follow his master's example? Well, I believe we see that through his actions. He basically throttles his fellow servant and throws him into debtor's prison because he had cultivated a heart of self-centeredness, of anger. His response of gratitude toward his master was not the result of a heart that had cultivated thanksgiving, was not the result of being transformed by that experience. He had no heart transformation from that experience. All that experience did 
was trigger the reward center in his brain. And he went along his merry way until something happened that caused him to remember uh, an offense. And he reacted out of his heart in anger. Because studies show that people who cultivate thanksgiving in their heart are more likely to forgive. They are less likely to get angry and even less likely to act out in expressions of anger. So I believe if he had spent time cultivating a heart of gratitude, he would have turned around and forgiven his fellow servant. What are some steps that we can take to combat this family? We can meditate on scripture. And I have some scripture points up there. But if we skip to the next slide in Colossians, I want to pull out a couple lines that Paul writes here. He tells the church to bear with one another. In other words, you are all people. And we are all imperfect. We know this. Bear with one another in your imperfections. It's okay. And forgive each other as they come up, just as Christ forgave you. And my mom asked me one day, Debbie, what does it mean to forgive as Jesus forgave? I said, well, he forgives us completely. He forgives us wholly. He doesn't throw it in my face later. He gives me a clean slate. And she said, yeah, what else? Uh, I don't know. That was, that was my answer. <laughs> and she said, well, Jesus forgave me before I asked for it. Jesus forgave me before I realized that I needed it. Jesus forgave me before I ever even sinned. And that's how we're supposed to forgive. We need to forgive each other before the other person asks for it, before the other person realizes that they need to that they need to ask for forgiveness, and before they even offend us, bearing with one another, knowing that we're all imperfect people. Because forgiveness isn't about condoning a wrongful action. It's about the atmosphere in my own heart and refusing to stay in bondage to that negativity to, and staying in bondage to that hurt. It's about living in freedom and cultivating a positive atmosphere in my heart. So how can we combat this grouping? Well, we can meditate on scripture. We can choose to forgive. We can discuss grievances. There are times for that. But we should do it with respect. And I want to, from personal experience, I just want to throw this out there. Check your own heart first. There have been many times that I wanted to bring a grievance. I was upset about something. I was kind of hurt and angry. And I went to God in prayer. And I was working it out with God. You know, God, this person, you know, that kind of, those kind of prayers. And God started to work me through my own heart issues. And by the time God was done, I didn't have a grievance to bring up anymore. <laughs> just, just saying. <laughs> so check your own heart first. And gratitude, which we already talked about. It makes us more likely to forgive and less likely to get angry. So what's filling our hearts? Unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, and anger? Or grace and thanksgiving? 
But what about worry, anxiety, and fear? Well, timidity can often be a first step. I know I started out as a shy, very shy, timid girl, and it seemed innocent. And it, but I didn't like the cold, clammy hands that you get and the way your heart pounds and the way um, your mouth gets so dry when you have to confront fear. And so I did everything I could to avoid any situation that would cause that reaction in my life. And what happened was, it seemed easy, right? But what happened was fear got bossier over my life as I allowed it to make decision after decision in my life. It got bossy. And by the time I met Randy, it was very, very easy to just follow behind him. He was taller than I was. He was far more confident. He had a voice that carried. It was just easy for me to allow him to take the lead. Now, I can choose to let my husband lead because he's the head of my house. And I can choose to allow him to take the first step in social situations. Or I can choose to follow around behind him because I'm too afraid to say hi for myself. One is freedom. The other is bondage. They might look the same, but it's not about the way it looks. It's about what's going on in the heart. Now, interestingly enough, fear and anger have almost identical pathways in our brain. And they behave in much the same way. They try to control us. This grouping, it tries to make us dependent upon it. And that was the situation that I was in. And it didn't take long after we were married, probably because we moved across the state. So I was pulled out of my comfort zone. And most people in my life had no idea the level of control that fear had over me because I always stayed in my comfort zone. <laughs> um, but he spotted it pretty quickly. And he loved me too much to let me stay in bondage. I remember when we were first married, he was friends with a certain gentleman, and I wanted to be friends with his wife. And every time I went to talk, every coherent word would fly out of my head. He would, that, he's an introvert, and he would sit there on the couch with our landline phone, <laughs> back, in, back in those days, and he would sit there with scrap paper and write out conversation scaffolds for me, sometimes whole sentences, so I could have a conversation with a new friend. The years went by, and then he said, okay, it's time for you to introduce yourself at a party. I'm not going to introduce you. You need to do it. You can say hi. And over the years, he has loved me, patiently loved me into freedom. And now we're tackling the upfront stuff. And sometimes you see me win, and sometimes you see the fear win. <laughs> but what you don't know is sometimes when it seems like I've won, sometimes I get in that car, I drive home, and fear doesn't like being told what to do. It, it doesn't. And so it starts screaming in my head in a megaphone all the same lies and tricks. And it's happened that I've gotten home, and I'm a wreck. And he has been elbows and knees deep, loving me into freedom over this last year and a half. And he deserves a medal. <laughs> And for those of you who aren't married yet and young, that's real love. Not the stuff in the movies. That's real love. 
So God loves us with perfect love. And I say he's loving me into freedom and help in co-laboring with God to love me into freedom because faith is not the opposite of fear. He who doubt, does not doubt but believes. So doubt and faith go together. They're opposites. But it's love that casts out fear. And God loves us perfectly. And God does not seek to control us but to guide us. But fear, it doesn't love us. It just wants to control us. It doesn't want to empower us either. It just wants to cripple us. So God, he wants to empower us and guide us into his perfect plan, which, as you remember, is so much better than ours. And one of the things I've come to realize about fear, with all of my struggles with it, is that when we allow fear to make our decisions, we're trading freedom for a false sense of security. Let me say that again. When we allow fear to make our decisions, we're trading freedom for a false sense of security. It felt safe to avoid the pounding heart and the dry mouth. It felt safe, but it was bondage. And we can kick fear out of the driver's seat through God's perfect love. And I'm not talking about throwing away wisdom. We all have brains, and we have the Bible for conduct guidelines to keep us safe and protected. I'm talking about that false sense of security and safety that we get when we allow fear to make the choices instead of faith in God. So how can we combat fear? Desensitization which is what I talked about in my story with Randy, step by step, even if they're really little baby steps, step by step, combating and facing that fear in steps that you are able to achieve and you are able to accomplish. And over time, it adds up. We can meditate on scripture. I've mentioned meditation a few times here today. Um, and I just kind of want to highlight it because meditation is not memorization. It works a little bit differently. Meditation, they've done studies on it, and there's this little tiny part in our brain that is uh, wired into the automatic systems of our body that go in, that are really responsible for the fight or flight response. So what happens is when we're confronted with something that makes us fearful, that automatic circuitry kicks right in before our logic has even gotten one step. I mean, it's full force. So, but what they've seen is that when people meditate, it takes that little part of our brain that fires the whole system off and decreases its connection to areas of automaticity and increases it to areas of control. And the effects last when we're not meditating. So it's a really good way to control something that is otherwise not controllable. Okay, and gratitude. Gratitude is another way to combat. And the key is every day. And when we find things to be thankful for every day, studies have shown it reduces anxiety and really truly makes a positive difference in our lives. So what's filling our hearts? Timidity, anxiety, worry and fear? Or love, faith, and thanksgiving? Have you ever been in a room full of people, even people you know, felt completely alone. 
the emptiness of loneliness can fill our hearts in a hurry. Now, being alone and being lonely are not the same thing. Being alone is a physical state, like I'm alone in the room right now, but being lonely is a mental and emotional one, and they don't necessarily go together. And loneliness is, it, is a serious enough issue on its own, but if it's not dealt with, it can lead to a bigger issue, which is depression. And depression is a prolonged state of feeling sad, lonely, and hopeless. But it is not hopeless, even though it wants you to think it, think it is and to believe that. Um, recently, I had a vision of somebody with two wrists with these metal shackles on it. And I, didn't, and I said, okay, God, what are you trying to say here? He didn't give me any further clarification, nothing more to the vision until last week when Erica was up and was talking about God laughing. And then he showed me the vision again, and he was laughing over the shackles, and they burst off and fell off. And I really believe that God is, wants to release a revelation of his joy, a revelation of his joy that is our strength that will enable us to walk in freedom. Because we can reject the lies of the loneliness and depression and any of the groupings that I've been talking about today in exchange for God's freedom. Because... Christ set us free so we could be free. That is our birthright through the blood of Jesus is freedom. And so we need to reject the lies of things like loneliness and depression and exchange it for God's truth and God's joy and his strength. We can do that, again, with meditation on scripture, which I have some uh, scripture points up there, but also through gratitude. They found that when we express gratitude, it makes us feel more connected to the person that we are expressing gratitude to. So it combats loneliness. And, that, and they found that regular expressions of gratitude reduce depression and loneliness. So what are we filling our hearts with? Loneliness and depression? Or God's hope, joy, presence, and thanksgiving? Now I put two words together today filled and thanksgiving that I'm sure bring back a lot of memories from this past Thursday. <laughs> but as I uh, researched the word thanksgiving in the Bible, I was surprised to find that the Jews would have associated very full bellies with thanksgiving also. And the first mention of the word thanksgiving is in Leviticus 7.12. And this is where God was instituting the sacrificial system. And one of those sacrifices was the thanksgiving sacrifice. Now, this sacrifice was part of the peace offerings, so this was a little bit different. This grouping was a little bit different from some of the other sacrifices in that it was completely optional. Nobody ever had to make a peace or a thanksgiving sacrifice. It was optional. Um, and it was different because everybody got to eat. So there were some offerings that were given completely to God. Nobody ate it. Then there were some offerings where God and the priest ate, so the priest got to physically eat it in the temple. And then the peace offerings, everybody got to eat. So it was God, the priest, and the regular guy. Now, the Thanksgiving sacrifice consisted of an entire animal and four different types of loaves or bread. And traditionally, the offer brought 10 of each. So it was a whole animal and 40 loaves of bread. That's a lot of food. <laughs> and it had to be eaten all in one day. So... 
in order to reduce waste, they would bring a whole entourage with them and it would be a big feast. And this was symbolic to show that the depth of gratitude toward God had to go beyond words, had to go beyond emotions, and it had to be so big, you had to do something big. And they had to be eaten the whole day. The whole thing had to be eaten in one day to show that we have to give thanks to God every day. And I love that Chris mentioned Psalm 100 because in this passage, David is pairing expressing thanksgiving to God with entering his gates, which is entering into his presence. And remember, expressing thanksgiving draws us closer to the person or God that we're expressing thanks to. And I love how David pairs it in that psalm. But it's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul writes about bringing our prayers and requests to God with thanksgiving. Again, drawing us closer to God as we are presenting our prayers to him. I believe in part because it stirs up faith. As you get in the presence of God, faith starts to grow. And it keeps our eyes off the problem and onto the solution. So when we talk about being filled with thanksgiving... It goes far beyond turkey dinners with all the fixings. Choosing a lifestyle of thanksgiving promotes deeper connections between us and others and us and God. And choosing a lifestyle of thanksgiving promotes well-being for our minds, for our bodies, and for our emotions. So what are some action steps that we can take to fill our hearts with thanksgiving? Well, we can meditate on the truth found in scripture, and I provided a supplemental handout with all kinds of scriptures uh, organized by the groupings that I talked about today that you can use as a starting point. Uh, we can do gratitude journaling, which is you find something every day to be thankful for. Specific is key here. So to say, oh, I'm thankful it's Friday is great. Nothing wrong with that. But to say, oh, I'm thankful it's Friday, and I love the way the sunset is just gorgeous with the clouds. Okay. So specific is key, every day is key. And they showed, interestingly enough, that using a good old-fashioned paper and pen or pencil is the most effective. I know. <laughs> and bonus um, is that you have a written record then for those days and those times when it's really hard, right? Um, we, you can write a thank you note to somebody. You can volunteer. They found that when people do volunteer work, they have greater levels of gratitude. Um, and there are plenty of opportunities here at the church as well as in the community. Um, we can watch our words, which I talked about quite a bit today. Um, watch for what I call complaining routines. You tend to maybe complain to the same people or around the same time of day. Uh, watch for that. And if you find that you're somebody who falls into that, you know, when you start to approach that person or that time of day, I start praying work really hard to find something to be thankful for to get yourself out of that cycle. We can challenge ourselves to find something to be thankful for in a situation we normally wouldn't. And we can wake up each morning and go to bed every night praising God and thanking him for something. The prayer and worship teams can come forward. That'd be great. So as we go about our weeks, let's not just put on a front like a beautifully wrapped but empty cardboard box. Let's fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Choose one action step. Start practicing it so we can acknowledge the blessings that God has given us and share the goodness 
of his life with those around us.